please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5 through 18. The text will be on the screen as I read. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. If you are visiting, I've never and I've never met you before. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Um, kids, as usual, through pre-K, you're dismissed to go to children's church. And a reminder to parents to pick them up either right before or right after you take uh, communion. We are finishing up today the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul letter of 1 Corinthians. We have been in the, a sermon series on this since the season of Advent, so it's been several months. Uh, but today will be the last message on this book. And we finished up chapter 14 last week, and then we skipping ahead to chapter 16 because we did three messages on 1 Corinthians 15 during the season of Easter. Uh, since that dealt with the, the Christian doctrine of resurrection. Uh, so today is it. This is, uh, this is uh, the last message. Uh, next week, we go back into the Summer of the Psalms uh, sermon series, where we uh, typically every summer do 10 psalms a summer. And this summer, we are going to go through Psalm 71 all the way to 80, and that will bring us into Labor Day weekend. And then right at the beginning of school, we'll start another sermon series, but we'll talk about that a little bit later because we still have to enjoy summer, right? Amen, church? Just linger here a little bit before we get carried away into the fall already, all right? Uh, and another reminder, and I know this was already announced, that next week we will not be gathering here. We're going to be gathering with another uh, church in our denomination, the Free Church, over at Payne Avenue Evangelical Free Church on the east side of St. Paul. We'll be gathering uh, there with uh, uh, not only our church and Payne, but a Capital City Church. They meet down in the West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul. And then also a church plant that's starting, a house church plant that's starting in Highland. Uh, they will also be joining us uh, for that Sunday. 
And if you are out of town um, and you want a way to still connect with us that Sunday, there will be a, a short message uh, that will be on Trinity's website. Uh, you can also access it through Spotify and iTunes, but there will be a short message or a short reflection on Psalm 72 for that Sunday as well. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Now before um, I pray and then uh, open up uh, this message, I do want to pause and reflect, as we often do, on, on big news that hits our culture. And I do want to spend a time and offer a pastoral prayer at the beginning here in light of the, the news regarding abortion and the Saint Supreme Court ruling. We are a church that's politically diverse, so you would likely talk to people in this congregation that have different uh, commentary on what happened and how do you process the news, but we have a common commitment, despite our, religion, or our political diversity, we have a common commitment to the gospel, we have a common commitment to God's justice, and a common commitment to the image of God in all people that has led our church to have unity around other issues of our day. So we are a church that typically will lean into matters of race, immigration, gun violence, the Me Too movement, and yes, even abortion. Uh, so for some of you that have been around a while, you probably are not surprised that we are leaning into it, at least for a time of prayer here at the beginning. And I would say in our church, uh, for those of us that are really, we're united here, we're united around what the scriptures say and what the Christian faith teaches, there's a common thread for all of us uh, despite our political differences, that there's a commitment that everyone is made in the image of God and anything in our culture or in our laws that dehumanize, oppress, or threaten the life of any person is something to be opposed for the sake of life and love and human flourishing. So therefore, we are a church that cares deeply about both children and their safety in classrooms as well as their development in the womb. And we carry unique uh, concerns uh, and burdens with those who are mothers and are tasked to bring children into this world as well. We also care about families, and we want families to flourish so that men and women who bring life into this world would commit to the vocation of mothering and fathering while having all that they need to raise children in an environment of love. That's where our church is at despite our political differences. So what I want to do is offer a pastoral prayer in addition to praying for our time here in the text of 1 Corinthians 16, in light of this news and in light of these things that I mentioned, and the, the text that I want to pray through, because there's so many great prayers and songs in the book of Psalms, and now I'm going back to Psalm 10. And I remember because I preach, I've preached on abortion among other issues of our day throughout the years of Trinity, and when we did a sermon on Psalm 10, I did a, a, a topical sermon uh, based on that text on the issue of abortion. So I went back there just to read it this week to remind myself of what did I see and hear in that text that related to this issue, and I want to use that as a pastoral prayer to begin our service here together, to recommit our, our mission of our church and our purposes as a Christian faith uh, to the purposes of justice and human flourishing and the life of everybody who's made in the image of God. So let's go ahead and pray using the language of Psalm 10. Let's pray. Lord, whenever an, in an injustice persists, 
we ask as your people, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Look, Lord, the arrogance of the wicked hunts down the weak. They are caught up in the scheme of evil devices. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles you, Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek you. In all his thoughts, there is no room for you, God. His ways are always seem to be prosperous, and your laws are rejected by him. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever harm me. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off into his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And he says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. But here's the truth, O Lord. You do see. So arise, Lord, and lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile you? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, you do see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you because you are the helper. You are the helper of the unwanted child. You are the helper of, and you care for every mother and you call men to be fathers who serve and to sacrifice. Lord, you are king forever and ever. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Lord, that's who you are. And that's why we worship you. And now as we turn to your word again, Lord, we want you to speak as a God of love and justice and commitment to life of every human being. Lord, we want to hear the words from you who are committed to those things because that's who you are and you will always be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got the joy once of visiting ancient Corinth, uh, and I remember that throughout the, the sermon, too, because it was uh, just these vivid memories that were given to me uh, as I'm thinking about them as I'm preaching through this letter. I was able to go there because I was with a uh, missionary group called Training Leaders International. We have supported that ministry throughout the years, and I got the joy of, of years and years ago I was doing a couple trips with them, and one of them was to Athens, Greece, uh, where we got to partner with some Anglican brothers and sisters there, uh, and also to be able to uh, go into different uh, churches and informal settlements that were doing church planting to do some theological education in those settings as well. On our single day off, we got to do a short trip to uh, Corinth, and not only go through the modern city, but then travel to the ancient city of Corinth and be able to explore different things. And it was, it was amazing seeing specific spots that the book of Acts mentioned where Paul would have been here standing in this courtyard or standing in this area and being able to picture those things. And one of the things, uh, in addition to that, that I remember about um, visiting ancient Corinth 
was we went to this museum and there were all these statues of, of different human body parts. And the reason those statues were there, the person who was guiding us in this tour said, is that there was this belief that if you had an ailment, like a broken arm, for example, that you would make a statue of your arm and offer it up to the gods and hope that that uh, would in incentivize them to heal that body part of yours. Now, as you started to go through the museum, it became clear that there were some body parts that were more popular than others. <laughs> body parts that were under the belt or below the belt and uh, that they tended to be of the male variety. All right, I won't go into details from there, but that's the common body part that you would see. And the reason for that was because, and you probably would not be surprised now going through 1 Corinthians, that there was a bit of promiscuity in Corinthians culture, and so there were infections that were spreading in those body parts, and so they were offering statues of them to the gods in hopes that they would heal. And I remember thinking uh, in that moment, no wonder Paul writes the things that he does in First and Second Corinthians if this is the type of environment that he was dealing with and even because I'm a pastor, I was like, I can't wait to preach these letters someday. Uh, just, because, just because of this, right? And I, and I did intentionally pick uh, preaching through this letter in a moment where, uh, like the sense that I was getting from many uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, not only maybe in this congregation, but other congregations were networked with, that there was a sense in the last couple of years that people really struggled with the church, and the church seems messed up, and the church is divided, and the church doesn't seem to agree on foundational ethics and approaches to the world, and what are we going to do about that? And I'm like, I'm like, oh, you think that the church is kind of messed up right now? I remember a church that was seriously messed up too, so let's preach through that book of the Bible, and that's what we did. And, I, and I'm sure it will be a matter of time before I will be able to have the joy of tackling First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, rather. Uh, but don't worry, that's not happening in the fall. Uh, it will be a different sermon series that I have planned there. We won't be going to Second Corinthians right away. And now we're at the end. After several months in this book, we hear the closing thoughts from Paul, and I want us to consider those closing thoughts, but then I also want to offer my own in the second half of this message as well. When you read the closing thoughts in chapter 16, one of the commentators that I read put it really well. It, it reads like you're reading somebody else's mail. You, you're reminded that this is not only a sacred text, but a very human text with a human author who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he was human nonetheless, and he was, he's addressing all these different like logistical issues and dropping names and setting some things up for travel itinerary, and that's what he starts to tackle in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. For example, in the first four verses, he deals with uh, the church in Corinth taking up an offering as a church. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, save it up, so that when I, have, when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I'll give letters of instructions to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this offering is not for the church in Corinth. It's not for Paul himself, 
Rather, it's for the church in Jerusalem. It may have been some type of benevolence offering to help with the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. That's what Romans 15 mentions. And it's remarkable to note the power of the gospel in this little logistic that he mentions here. It is that, he, that the power of the gospel leads a Gentile church in Corinth to donate and to care for and provide for poor Christians that are mainly Jewish Christians in the church of Jerusalem. He hits on travel logistics in verses 5 through 9. He says, after I go to Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now uh, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So Paul's in Ephesus, but he expresses a desire to see those in Corinth and he doesn't want a quick trip. He wants to linger there and the reason he's staying in Ephesus, he says, is that God is doing some amazing things here and then he notes, but there's even some people that are opposing me. And for those two reasons, I need to stay because of the opposition, but also that God is working. And again, it's striking that Paul wants to see them for this long visit. Part of the reason for that long visit is the messy church situation he's dealing with. This can't be a quick trip. There's some serious things that they need to keep working out, and so he needs to stay there for a long time. But it also shows, even at the end of the letter, Paul's commitment to this church, even though it's not particularly healthy. And then in 1 Corinthians um, 16, 10 through 12, he mentions a couple church leaders. He says, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So Paul is sending his young pastor that he's mentoring, Timothy, uh, to Corinth, but he also explains why Apollos is not coming. If you remember earlier in the letter, Apollos' name has, came up because there were these, like, these cliques that were forming in the church of Corinth around uh, certain church leaders that they liked more than other ones. So there was the clique that followed Apollos and one for Paul and one for Peter. So that's probably why he mentions Apollos and explains why Apollos isn't coming and there, there's no reason that's given other than he's not willing to go now, but he's open to it in the future. Timothy, on the other hand, he is going to go. And Timothy is essentially Paul's pastoral resident. He's just figuring out his footing in Christian ministry, and that's likely why Paul is saying, hey, be nice to the kid, all right? You guys got some things going on, so I'm sending you somebody that's a little bit on the green side, so I want him to come in peace, and when he comes back to me, I want to hear that it all went okay. That would be the equivalent of me sending our former pastoral resident David to a church that's utterly divided by culture wars and fighting about COVID policies and dealing with crisis after crisis and say, hey, go for it, David. Let's see how you do. Let's see if they eat you alive, right? And for the record, we did not do that to David. He went to a great church at Centennial. And, and if you remember, uh, today is actually a big day for them there, our brothers and sisters in Christ there, because they're doing his official installation service uh, there today. 
In verses 15 through 20, I won't read those, but Paul wants to recognize some brothers and sisters in Christ because of their service in the gospel, and he mentions greetings from other churches and other Christians that uh, those in Corinth would know. And then we get to verses 21 through 24, where Paul says this, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love to all of you, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Paul says he's writing with his own hand because the rest of the letter he dictated to a scribe who was writing down what he said. But then at the very end of the letter, he takes up the pen and he writes. And we don't have the original autograph of this manuscript, but if we did have the joy of being able to look at it, you would have seen different handwriting uh, for most of the letter. It would have been one person's handwriting, but then at the very end in these verses, it would be different handwriting because Paul himself is writing these words. And what does he write with his own hand? He expresses again the seriousness of love, that the love of the Lord is to permit, permeate everything in a Christian's life. And in the strongest terms, he says, to neglect this love is to lead a person to be cursed. He expresses his desire for the Lord's return. He extends the Lord's grace to them. He communicates his own love to them in Christ. And here we see again, if you're paying attention, that it seems like just his kind of formal closing, but he's bringing up all these big, important themes that he unpacked throughout the letter. Themes of God's grace, a desire for the Lord to return, and a commitment to the love of God and the love of the church that he has even at the end of the letter. So that's what we see at the end of this letter. Love, grace, and a continued desire to see that God's redemption would be done. And I want to close with my own thoughts related to those three themes. Just to re just reflect on our journey through 1 Corinthians and some of the things now that we're wrapping up that st stuck out to me as we went through this uh, several-month journey through this letter. And I, I have three closing thoughts related to that. The first one, and the, a big thing that sticks out to me about 1 Corinthians uh, is the theme of our need for grace. The theme about our need for grace. Paul needed to address the things happening in this messy church. There are church divisions around one's favorite Christian leaders. They're divided even at the Lord's Supper. Their sexual ethics, they're messed up. The church didn't do anything about a man sleeping with his stepmom and other people are sleeping with prostitutes at the temple and still others are neglecting sexual intimacy with their spouse within marriage. Others took a stance in a debatable matter about food sacrificed to idols in such a way that they failed to understand the impact on other Christians, the impact on those following or exploring the Christian faith, and the impact on their own spiritual life. When they gather for worship, it's a chaotic mess where there's this spiritual competition that's going on and people are just showing off their spiritual gifts rather than using them to benefit others. And there are even some, if you remember, in this church that deny the bodily resurrection of the dead. And that's why I keep going back to what Paul says. As messed up as this church was, do you remember what he opened with? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. 
For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. This church needs a lot of grace, but he still expresses the fact that grace is given to them, and he's thankful for this church, even though they're probably a thorn in Paul's side, that Paul still expresses gratitude and sees this church as being a work of God's grace. Well, it's such a work of grace, that's why Paul wrote more letters. We don't just have 1 Corinthians, right? We have, we have 2 Corinthians, and we know from these two letters that there were other letters that we don't have access to that he wrote, meaning that they still had issues, even after this first letter, right? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where your relationship has went sideways or wrote an email or a text, and it cleaned it all up the first time? No, that rarely ever happens. There's usually still other things to work out. There's still tensions that you need to unpack, and that was the case here. And that's because Paul is committed to grace, even in a church that needed it so bad. He even has to spend two chapters in 2 Corinthians encouraging them in generosity, which is significant because what does he do at the end of the letter? He says, hey, take up a collection because we're going to help the poor in Jerusalem. Well, in 2 Corinthians, he has to take two chapters to talk about generosity in the gospel because they needed needling to do this. This is church, and it's difficult to be in community with sinners, and we all desperately need grace. The Christian life is all about grace. It's a life that not, we don't always get things right. And we have to recognize that reality. And that's why we confess our sins and turn away from sinful ways and sinful paths that we are on to go back to God's grace again and again and again because the church and you, Christian, not just the Christians in Corinth, deeply need this grace again and again and again. And 1 Corinthians is a letter that says that if you repent and you come back to the Lord's ways, God is eager to give it to you again and again and again. So that's one big theme that sticks out for me. The other one is living in light of the gospel, that all of our life is lived in light of the gospel. The opening chapter, again, of 1 Corinthians 1.18, reflects on the cross-centered life. In verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he ends the letter considering the power of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is of first importance in the Christian life is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to many, and that he is still active in redeeming and renewing, and he is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the gospel. That is the foundational reality and truth of what the church believes, not only in Corinth, but churches in St. Paul and throughout the globe to this day. And the gospel is not just something that you believe, but it's also something that will utterly change every aspect of your life. Every single nook and cranny of your life will be impacted by the gospel. And this letter unpacks 
implications of the gospel in areas that you would expect, like the Lord's Supper and the worship gathering and spiritual gifts. But if you remember some of the texts that we tackled, it really gets into your business. It gets into the details of life. The gospel had implications for God's divine purpose for our bodies. It had implications for what you eat and in what context and with whom. It had things to say about sex and intimacy. It even had implications for how a spouse addresses one's husband or wife in the worship gathering. So if you want a religion that doesn't get into your business, Christianity ain't it. This is a gospel, and this is a message that demands all of your life, your soul, your all. Every part of your life in the Christian life is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ where we work out in our life all the implications of the gospel. And it's one of the reasons that I opened with what I opened with before we got into the sermon. Because we're a church that's committed not only to see how these things were worked out in uh, a church setting like Corinth, but we want to figure out how it's worked out in today's world as we think about how the gospel redeems and renews and gives us a, us a, a vision of human life and flourishing as it relates to issues like race and immigration and abortion and so on, because we are a church that's committed to seeing how the gospel impacts all of life. The third and final theme I want to highlight from this book as a whole is the love of the Lord, the love of the Lord. The theme of love dominates this letter. You cannot imagine what God has prepared for those of us who love him. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9. However, it is written, what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says that knowledge is important in the Christian life, but it can lead to arrogance, but not love. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, we know that we all know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. If you are a person who loves, then it's because God knows you and loves you. He writes in verse 3 of chapter 8, whoever loves God is known by God. And then, of course, there was 1 Corinthians 13. I was super bummed that that David got to preach that one. Sometimes it's weird when I'm like a pastor and I have to hand certain sermons off uh, to people and I'm just like, oh, I want to preach. I want to preach 1 Corinthians in a context other than a wedding. That's kind of like, I just, just one time, I, just, I, I was really, really bummed I missed that one because it was such an important text in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's one of the most well-known texts and we know by going there that Paul deals with love as the greatest gift that Christians have. Everything else can be a bunch of noise if it's not motivated by love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, he says, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. God's love is for us, and our love is for God. And our love is for one another in the church and for those outside the church exploring the Christian life. Love dominates this letter so much that is where Paul ends. He says, if you don't love the Lord, then you are a cursed person, which also means the flip side is true, that if you do love the Lord, then that divine love is transforming you and you truly have the blessed and happy life. That is the good life, is to know God's love, to be loved by him, and then be able to express that love to brothers and sisters in Christ and to your neighbors who need it 
and those that have yet to hear it. So that's, thank you, brother. I still got to work on that. Still got to work on my implications of 1 Corinthians in my life. That's the letter of this letter called 1 Corinthians. We are all continually in need of God's grace. We center all of our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are to let love be the animating feature of everything that we do. And these are the things that Paul has in mind when he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, I think a great summary statement uh, and a way to close. He says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And then verse 14, Do everything in love. In other words, here's the closing message. Be all in with the Christian faith. Be all in with it. Nothing else in this life is worth giving your life to, your affection, your joy, all the details of your life. Give it to the Christian faith. Give it to the gospel. And to do so, he says, you need to be on guard. You need to stand firm because there's so much that's trying to push you away from the gospel, but don't let it happen. There's nothing that's going to bring you more joy. There's, not, there's nothing that's going to bring so much love into your life as the gospel message, as the love of Jesus Christ. So stand firm in it. Don't move. Don't let anything push you off of the gospel. He says, be courageous, Christian. Brothers and sisters, be strong. Don't be embarrassed about this faith. Be a witness to the beauty of the gospel to everyone, even if they don't see it yet. Don't give up on the church, despite the struggles of the church. The church is messed up, as the, the church of Corinth will testify to us, but be strong in the faith, even if your brothers and sisters around you abandon those ways, recommit yourself to those ways, and call them to repent, to come back to those ways to be strong, and to be courageous. And finally, he says, do everything in love. For if you are on guard, if you stand firm, if you're courageous and strong, but you don't have love, then you don't have anything. Love is the most important. Remember the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, who would lay down his own life for our redemption. And God continues to pour out that love on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So love God, brothers and sisters, because he first loved you. May that love order your life so that you love the church enough to extend grace, even while we're calling one another constantly back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that you would also love your neighbors, and that you would love those who do not yet know God's love. That is the message of the gospel that is the message of 1 Corinthians. Do everything in love because that is the gospel. Let me pause for an amen. Amen, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm growing as well.